Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. I've got a couple of really um, exciting guests on this episode. Uh, Dr. Uh, Josh Thompson is here. Hi, Josh. Thanks for being here. And Vivian Janiser is here. Good morning. Right. And I met both of you at the IPA USA conference in San Antonio, um, in October and, uh, am happy to have met you and happy that you're here. Um, they're both here to talk about, um, We'll do this a little bit first. A book called Scholarly Snapshots, The Importance of Play. Thanks, Josh has got it up. The Importance of Play as a Human Right. And it was edited uh, by Vivian and Josh contributed uh, the, the foreword and a chapter. And uh, we'll get into the details here in a minute. But first I wanna ask um, ask you each to talk a little bit about yourself so listeners know why they should listen to what you say. <laughs> Um, Vivian, can I ask you to go first? Just whatever you think okay, is of thank you. interest. So my internship as an early childhood educator was from age 12 to 18 when I was high school, high school babysitter. I babysat five and six days a week all through high school. And so years later, when people would say, well, it's easy for you. You're so good at it. I went, no, I developed some skills along the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, you know, and my husband used to say, well, that's what they say. The best ballerinas are the ones who make it look easy. Uh-huh. And so I went from being the neighborhood babysitter to majoring in elementary education. I taught school for a number of years. And when my daughter was born, I didn't want to put her in a daycare. So I started a daycare. Uh-huh. So I had Camp Janissa for 10 years. It was in my house. It was pretty wild and woolly. Had a lot of fun. (laughs) And so then because of all my years in early childhood, when I went back to get a PhD in curriculum and instruction, I focused on early childhood because I had so many more years of experience as an early childhood educator. Mm -hmm. So I taught at Texas A&M University, San Antonio for 14 years, left as an associate professor. I taught in the College of Education. I taught courses for uh, certification, early childhood through sixth certification courses, because I had taught elementary school, as well as a lot of the early childhood courses, like for the Head Start program. I taught grad school, early childhood program, and focused on play. And play has been my focus really forever, for decades, because when I had my own program, part of the reason is because when it would make sense to put my daughter in a daycare and for me to go back and have all the benefits of being a classroom teacher. But all of the uh, 
highly regarded programs within close proximity of my house were too structured. Mm -hmm. I wanted her to just play. <laughs> so I started my own. And uh, so play has been my focus my entire career. And in so, several years ago, I was doing book reviews for Roman and Littlefield. And one of the publishers contacted me and said, are you ready to write your own book? And I said, oh, gosh, I'd love to. I went to an IPA USA board meeting and I said, okay, who do you, who do you want to talk about? And everybody had their own favorite. Yeah. We ended up having to um, add a few. And so I was like contacting people, hey, do you want to write a chapter for this book so that we could have a more rounded perspective? Yeah. And yeah. It's, um, I've learned some theorists I didn't, I wasn't aware of uh, mm -hmm. looking at this book and um, I don't want to go too much into the book too, but I, I also want to say there are, um, uh, you know, some women in here. A lot of times when well, we talk about theorists, we're only talking about the men theorists and you've got some And, women. and that was a, a struggle. Some of yeah. the people wanted me to just stick with Piaget and just, mm -hmm. you know, the, like one of the contributors said, well, the early theorists were white male. Why would we argue with that? I said, I'm not going to put out a book in 2021 <laughs> or 2022 that doesn't have women yes. in the I'm yes. just not, I'm not going to put my name on that. But, um, and then, and also like, for example, Valora Washington, she was such a trailblazer in the Head Start program. And she, she herself like had an entire conference. She was in charge of an entire conference mm -hmm. on play. So it was totally appropriate to bring her along mm -hmm. and, you know, she was a very valuable con contributor, although as, you know, as a topic, not, she didn't write the chapter herself, yeah. but I think she helped a lot with yeah. it. And let me think, there's one other point I wanted to make, just that it was a real pleasure to do this, to see play from so many different angles. I absolutely adore Johan Huizinga. Uh. <laughs> he was very interesting to me. And, um, so I guess yeah. I'll let Josh go next. Yeah. And, Before, and, and Josh taught Montessori for 14 years. So of course, he like, did Montessori. I think, I think he was going to do it anyway, but I was like, please Montessori. Please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bef hold on just a minute, Josh. I want to apologize because I asked Josh if he wanted to be introduced as doctor, but I did not ask you, Vivian, if you oh, wanted well, to be introduced it's, it's fine. as way. doctor. Okay. Oh, I know what I was going to say. So I was okay. at AM San Antonio for 14 years and Josh is at AM Commerce in Texas. Uh, and now I'm at uh, Texas State University and I the course that I'm teaching several sections of it is um, play in educational settings for diverse learners and it's a required course for the EC through six certification program mm, great Thank it's a brand new course I love it I developed it oh well then I bet it's really fun um yeah okay Josh it's your turn thank you for waiting so patiently oh no I, it's <laughs> a joy to be in this conversation um, Dr. Janisser and I have yes, many sir. things in common in this work, but one thing is we are number six children out of large families, oh, and it boy. is my large family that really nurtured. There is a an artifact, an elder brother, when I was yet not yet born, drew a picture of our family with spot the dog across the top, kind of like a rainbow form. And there's mom and dad and happy and the person, my brother Bobby, 
wrote me himself and then Randy and and then there were two babies in big diapers. <laughs> my big brother, Richard, and my big sister, Pat. And they were not named Richard or Pat. They were named King and Queen. <laughs> I was born into a family that thought babies were royalty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was just exactly how. I mean, it was just a nurturing, uh, exciting, adventurous, a bunch of guys and then some girls. And so... George, Bobby, Randy, Richard, the big brothers, I was just all about following them into their adventures and scouting and science and sports and, and just guide play. Uh-huh. But then I had a big sister and me and a little sister. So I was raised in the pink bedroom. <laughs> I was comfortable in girl play. I married half of the girls in the neighborhood because I was the guy who could play with them in their dramatic play and have weddings and, <laughs> and have ceremonies and have events, but then go out and play rough, tough tumble with uh-huh. Mark Brown and Tommy Fox and his big black dog, Brownie. Yeah. Uh, so um, that sense of wonder of the young child fascinated me as I became a teenager. I, my big brothers started having babies and I started watching and caring and, and um, I recognized everybody likes babies, but I had a certain understanding, affinity, attraction, and, and interest in what's going on, right. what's happening. And, and very much also hands off, like, you know, care for children, such an important element but instruction and teaching, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not what's needed. Yeah. Children need space. And yeah. I, I am not the play scholar that Dr. Janice is. She has really done this background work, but I've helped, she's helped me through this book, this activity and others that, to connect the dots and see how, oh yeah, play is a theme throughout so much of the work. My own attempt to become an early childhood educator failed because I was in a public school teacher ed program. Great program, wonderful uh, background and, and good, good interpretation of these theorists. But then the, the, the field experience was in a public school. It was like, I don't want to do this to yeah. kids. I don't want to be that. <laughs> and so Montessori rescued me and gave me a life with children that was attentive and responsive and aware Mm -hmm. but not intrusive in the lives of children and Mm -hmm. and so I had applied initially for an early childhood position excuse me sorry but then um at the last minute I switched and said hey can I be considered for that elementary position and that probably saved my career because there were no men in early yeah. childhood, still no men in the lives Not a lot. of yeah. early childhood classrooms. So five years in elementary, and then I got my dream job, uh, 14 years in a three to six classroom. All four of our children went through my classroom, and uh, it really was those Montessori tools of observation and ethnography and placing the child within context of family and culture and language, but also individual differences and uniqueness that each child brings. All of those tools, I I found I needed more robust analysis skills. And that's what led me into a doctoral work, not in education, not in curriculum, but in um, the humanities, 
a child language study with semiotics and rhetoric and language discourse that helped me develop tools to examine particularly language use in the lives of young children. Mm -hmm. And um, during that time, I had a real conflict where I just, my life with children and my life as this academic were mutually exclusive universes. And I, I had to step out of my classroom to finish my degree mm -hmm. and you know, picked up a job teaching teachers and I fell in love with it. So <laughs> I've now been in higher ed 23 years and uh, loving it and teaching teachers at Texas A&M University Commerce in early childhood education. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, I, I would love to be in either of your classes. <laughs> um, you have fun. Yeah. I, I know that in my own experience and in some interviewing I've been doing lately with, um, with people about their own um, college experience is that play is not often prioritized um, in those, in those early childhood teacher prep programs um, <clears throat> or it's, talked about but then when we get into like the curriculum classes it's still very academic focus and um and adult led um so uh so i i just love whenever i hear that people are focusing respectfully and taking place seriously at that level one other piece of intro is to note that dr janice and i shared four years as co-editor of early years, the Journal of the Texas Association for Education of Young Children. And now she's continued on. She's now at 10 years as, as editor of that uh, robust journal. And uh, that's really kind of been a part of our teamwork oh, and editing and, and collaboration. Yeah, great. So let's talk about the book a little bit. <laughs> um, so again, it's called Scholarly Snapshots, The Importance of uh, Child Play as a Human Right. And it's a collection, I've got a quote, of course, because that's what we do, but it's a collection of uh, essays, essentially, of uh, 16 different um, uh, theorists or scholars who who talked about play or who um, whose work can be connected to, to play, um, which is also very appealing to me, because even when we do talk about the you know the five main theorists that every textbook talks about if we even get to five um it doesn't necessarily always include their their play ideas so this is this is a great resource but the quote that we're going to use is from the introduction written by uh Vivian and um however we aspire to pique your interest in the perspective of these 16 impressive scholars with the hope that you will continue to pursue your own interest in play and perhaps become an advocate um, so, so can we start by talking about the hope for advocacy with this book and where that where that fits or where that came from? Well, as a member of International Play Association, United States affiliate, IPA USA, we all consider ourselves advocates for play and do it in our own. Most of us are professors. That's how mm -hmm. we're doing it is by encouraging our students to advocate for play. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many stories like my kindergarten, because you know, I taught grad school. So I had a teacher who taught kindergarten during the day, came to grad school at night. She had a principal who came in and took away all of their blocks 
because he didn't see the point. Mm. And she was like, well, here's the research because she's in my class and she had an article to share with him. And he just, you know, because it's it's not on the quote standards. And yeah. so we have to connect playful activities to the, in Texas, Texas is central knowledge and skills, but the national standards so that our administrators can acknowledge that no play is education. Children learn through play mm -hmm. and it's vital to their development. Yeah. It's vital to their social, emotional and physical development. It's not just, you know, when we say all they, all they do is play well that, yeah, that's what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and so like one of the things I just did in my class is I went through all the teaks and listed all the teaks and all the things that, you know, how we uh, analyze the teaks and then set up activities that were pretty much free play mm -hmm. but that satisfied the teaks yeah and that's how we advocate for plays we show how it does meet the standards yeah i know josh has more to say <laughs> yeah the um the review i just did in preparation for this conversation really hit me how much play is work and mm -hmm. advocacy for play is war and mm -hmm. i understand that oh, within the context it. of all of the different push down effect the making kindergarten like second grade now yeah and making pre-k like first graders sitting in straight rows and all of those things that are in defiance of the child's right to play Mm -hmm. And that um, excellent concluding article, um, chapter 17, on reviewing the UN um, agreement article from the, the rights of childhood. So mm -hmm. it's a very important moment in the profession to really use a tool like this book and others that say, we, we do understand and, and the child does not have a voice and needs us to amplify their voice and be a part of their, I'm sorry, that was wrong. The child does have a voice, <laughs> I, I, that was, they're totally incorrect, but the child's voice is not heard and needs uh, amplification and empowerment to right. make it known how, how much uh, play in all of its different components um, make, the child who she is right so so can we unpack a little bit the idea of play as a human right um because i know when i when i've said that to to some folks when i talk about it or even when i just say um you know play is the right of a child and talk about the un convention not being ratified people think that that is um sort of too strong uh, that we're making it into a bigger deal than it is. Uh, but we know that it's essential to a child's humanity. It, it's an essential piece of who the child is and what they need to do in their life at that point. So how do we defend it as a human right? How do we make that case? Well... <laughs> You guys are so much more polite than most. Several years and have several hundred pages to back up. Right. That. Read the book. There's one answer. Well, it's not just, it's not any one individual. It's like many, 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 many mm -hmm. scholars of development advocate for play. 
and in from diverse disciplines as well. And um, that that's one of the other things I appreciate about the book is that it's not all just people who were specifically talking right. about early childhood. Yeah. You know, yeah. there, it is multiple disciplines represented in this work and all of them, you know, supporting the same idea that that um, play is the right of the child. And I think one of the key threads that shows up in lots of these different theorists, and it's right there in that chapter 17 on the UN statement on the rights of the child, is this sense of non-productivity. Mm -hmm. The idea that being mm -hmm. is so much more valuable and important than doing or accomplishing mm -hmm. or, or filling in a checkbox or anything mm -hmm. like that. And our schooling in the cultures that we're talking about right now are very driven by an input output mechanistic system right. devised in the industrial revolution devised to um, assure that we're getting the bang for our buck that we're mm -hmm. getting something in return and play. tangible yeah, yeah. A, measurable a, a widget uh -huh. That's that's something that's produced in the process, mm -hmm. and the child has shown us. No, it's now. It's yeah. me. <laughs> it's just having fun and yes. just being yeah. a part of this moment. And uh, um, it, it, there are many different parts of this philosophical, socio-political views that you know may turn in in any one wind wind or the in whichever the way the wind is blowing yeah, whichever yeah. way that this happens but in this moment we have this freedom to have this conversation about a different view of productivity and outcomes and um this actually you know hope uh, I am such a myopic optimist. I, I just really <laughs> do believe. And, and Montessori taught us that the child is the key to solving all of men's problems. Mm -hmm. And it's in this that we honor this sense of playfulness in you and me and us mm -hmm. as adults and in parenting and in, um, and in corporate life, being a playful partner helps us. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I, I think we've gotten, hmm, it, it, there's more talk about the value of early childhood education, um, politically speaking, socially, culturally, especially since the pandemic pointed out how important the work is. Um, and, you know, what you said, Josh, is that we can change the world with this work. But so it's, it's too common, I think, for people, for the adults to, to say, okay, that may be true, but I have to be in control of what's going on with the children then for that to, for that to happen. I, I have to start earlier to sort of indoctrinate them and give them what I think they need to go forward and change the world instead of sort of understanding that um, that takes away the value of of what's happening in early childhood too often it's like the hundred languages poem um of the hundred we take 99 
Right. Um, they they take they take ninety nine. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you've hosted uh, Carol Gobardine Murray recently, mm, yes. and yeah. her work on illuminating care yes. is a phenomenal shift in cultural mm -hmm. view of right. what are we doing and what is valued yeah. and what is essential worker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and care is, is yes, those things that we have to do for the child that the child can't do for herself. Mm -hmm. But then what, what do we need to do to get out of her way and let her, what Montessori calls the auto-education, mm -hmm. that spontaneous activity of the child driven to become a member of her culture and her society. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to say that the desire to learn to read and write is just mm -hmm. as strong as the desire to learn to speak. So a lot of the emphasis on getting ready for kindergarten, we don't really even need to do because even back before a lot of this research validated what I was doing anyway, mm -hmm. I had a one of those soft puzzles uh, for the alphabet, but I wasn't pressuring my little girl to, to do that. And she on her own, she, she said, which one is the Q, meaning a Q? And I showed it to her and she's like so happy to put it back. She wanted to know what was a Q. Uh, it, uh -huh. I didn't ever say, identify this. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to say about control and rigid structures and scheduling is that when you put a child in a room full of blocks or other constructive toys or loose parts, they want to sit and contemplate what they're going to do before they ever even start. So right. if we have them rigidly scheduled that 30 minutes into it, they have to transition to a new activity, right. you're going to lose a lot of that planning period. Yeah. So yeah. really, you know, two hour, three hour blocks of time of kids selecting their own activity yeah. is yeah. more realistic for their own development. Yeah. And they may segue into something completely different halfway through because they decided they were interested in something else and that's part of their own personal development. Yeah. I keep hearing people talking about how children don't know how to play anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, on my Facebook page, I, you know, put out kind of tell me what you think this means when people say um, just to, to, to kind of gauge. But I think what you're what you just described, Vivian, the not having enough time to really settle in and think about it and maybe do some onlooker play to see what other folks are doing other kids are doing um so they don't ever get involved or they think or they've learned it's not worth it to get involved because i'm just going to get interrupted and so maybe that's part of what we see and we interpret it as children don't know how to play when in fact adults don't know how to value it enough to allow it and to schedule the large blocks of time they need and so much of their time, they're expected to be compliant. So they're yeah. always kind of on the edge, wondering if they're doing the right thing, mm -hmm. whereas they really should be allowed to do what they want yeah. to do, except yeah. maybe bite another kid. <laughs> <laughs> Create a little excitement. <laughs> One Montessori principle is about the power of the hand mm -hmm. as a um, the, the path, the gateway yeah. to the mind. And... Mm -hmm. uh, materialized abstraction is one of the understandings of the sensorial work uh -huh. that the sense of depth has an object on the shelf that materializes and concretizes the substance of this 
abstract thought um, in taking playful learning into higher ed and opening a class with adult learners that I've never met before. Mm -hmm. We're just getting to know each other and they're just <laughs> getting to know each other and one another. And the room is full of cardboard. And uh, I do recruit and say, hey, the first day, bring in your right. cardboard pieces and, Love it. and your tools. And and um, they meet each other tentatively at tables that they sit down and then they get up. And I have prompts that I place yeah. around the room to create um, a ramp that can convey a rolling object 10 feet and, yeah. and then add two turns just little prompts to help them get started. Another prompt says, once upon a time, there was a blank castle, home, fort, construction. And in that lived blank, blank and, and their little prompts to fill in the blanks. But then that's it, just a story stem to start the conversation. Yeah. And the ramps is most often the thing that is of interest to them. Um, following an article called Ramps and Pathways by Betty uh -huh. Zan yeah, right. and, and Rita DeVries. And so um, one student recently just talked about that process of, we didn't have, we tried to brainstorm, we didn't have any ideas. But once we started picking up objects and started twisting them and started, all of a sudden the ideas mm -hmm. flowed mm -hmm. from our hands. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and just that, because you know movement wakes up the brain right and it and it activates the areas that we want to activate more and effectively frank, than just frank sitting wilson and trying wrote to an work entire it. book on the hand and how it, it relates Who? frank wilson okay the hand and the brain co-evolved uh -huh. and also a lot of famous novelists throughout the centuries women novelists um i read this in a book on writing did quilting and embroidery there's something about the handbook uh -huh. that stimulated their ability to write about their Well, that's very encouraging because I embroider, <laughs> I knit and I crochet. Oh, oh wonderful. <laughs> so now, now I'll just call that pre-writing. I'll call that part of okay. my writing process. Um, I tried, so one of the classes I taught recently was our curriculum in the early childhood classroom mm -hmm. class. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be really fun. We'll do, we met on Tuesdays and Thursdays and on Tuesdays, you know, and so we had a focus for a week, like this is the week we're going to explore fine motor and, uh, you know, broke it down all the, for the developmental domains into smaller pieces and um, made sure, you know, I'm going to make sure we're including movement and we're including sensory. It's going to be great. And so on Tuesdays, we'll, we'll talk and we'll discuss the reading and whatever on Thursdays we'll play. Well, the students stopped coming on Thursday because they didn't see that as important class time. Wow. So I had to completely shift that around because even in these, um, you know, some of them were already working with young children. Some of them were not yet, you know, just out of high school and taking these classes. Um, that shocked me. I was like, they're going to love this class because we're going to play every Thursday. <laughs> so I realized it had to be more incorporated and I have to be more explicit maybe about what we're doing but uh, when you're yeah. describing your ramps and pathways that was like my dream what you're describing josh was my dream but it didn't happen <laughs> on thursdays right. and as, as we all have shifted through the pandemic into 100 zoom we were teaching online for a long yeah. time 
and I don't really have can't playful well. experiences in my online classroom. Yeah. Uh, but my students still report a sense of playfulness mm -hmm. that they recognize in just the activities and yeah. the things. And so I really am uh, shifting, uh, you know, studying the adult learner. Uh -huh. um, and um, one shift of phrase, um, pedagogy is the teaching of child and andragogy is the teaching of the adult and hudagogy, I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's H-E-U-T-O-G-O-G-Y, that sense of self-teaching, self-actual, self-preparedness. And so that I present to these adult learners as my objective. I know how to teach you. I know how to do this direct instruction thing, but I also know how to do this uh, where we can do something fun mm -hmm. and joyful and get different things out of it. Again, it's that that productivity, you know? Yep. Uh, what are you going to get out of it? Well, you're going to have an experience. You're going to... Uh, take away uh, an experience that can enhance your teaching. Yeah. And I, I think by separating the days, I, I sort of unintentionally supported the idea that play and learning are separate. I, you know, that was one of the other things that I took away from that. But um, so to say, to kind of segue back to the book, I guess, um, I'm excited to be able to, to start using this in um, uh, my child growth and development class um because i i think it will be really valuable because of the information obviously but also because of that uh what we talked about earlier that the ideas are coming from different disciplines and different areas of study and that sort of opens it up i think we get so narrowly focused on standards or um licensing regulations the the paths to, or the in indiana it's paths to quality the quality rating systems that right. we forget there's a whole world out there that can contribute to our knowledge and our our practice with young children sorry i lost my thought again um what so so what what else do you want to say about the book what else should we talk about um I mean, of course, I hope that people will will leave the episode wanting to go buy it right away. I, I haven't, but, oh, thank you for but, saying that. Yeah, I haven't it, mentioned yeah. the part on, uh, so play therapy is addressed yeah. in the book, as well as bilingual play. Uh -huh. uh, what, who, what is it? Olivia Natividad. Uh, she had so many, there were so many resources from her. Uh -huh. um, and that's a popular, then, that's when I get questions that, about a lot. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And then Louise Derman Sparks, uh, her contributions to play, Olivia Natividad Sriracha. Mm -hmm. and she had, she started off in South Texas teaching bilingual children and has a lot to say about teaching bilingual education with playful approach, mm -hmm. as well as the anti-bias, which is now more known as the anti-racist approach mm -hmm from uh, Louise Derman Sparks mm -hmm. and many others. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, you know this, that's such an important thing to yeah. include and needs to be considered 
not again, not as like a separate thing. Like we'll learn early childhood stuff and then we'll learn, we'll have, we'll have one class session or we'll do one assignment or whatever about, or we'll go to one workshop about the anti-racist, anti-bias stuff, but it needs to be considered in all of the, the, all of our practice, yeah, that all of was our areas. Definitely a big part of my uh, course this past fall yeah. is the anti-bias, anti-racist approach, because for example, recess in lower socioeconomic regions is not as emphasized as in the more mm -hmm. either private sector or the more wealthy yeah. school districts because parents will advocate for their kids to have recess. Whereas yeah. in other cultures, in other parts of the state of Texas anyway, um, children are not required to have recess. And so some teachers take away recess altogether and they get away with it mm -hmm. and it should be mandated. It should be yeah. by law. They should have a certain amount of recess per week. And one of my graduate students did a study of all of her friends and hundred percent of them said, yes, we think recess is very important. But then when they kept track of their minutes that they did research each, that they allowed kids to have recess each week, it was minimal mm -hmm. because they said, well, we have to do all these academic right. chores. We don't have time for recess but you don't have time to not do recess because it's essential to development. Right. I think that's, you know, play in general, we can see that, um, that sort of division, that mismatch, um, that the higher families with more resources, mm -hmm. I'll say it, white families, more, more access to the research, have more access to that, um, have more experience being able to influence and advocate right. um, successfully. And then we, we, you know, we have the programs that are specifically targeted for the lower income or at risk, which has become a euphemism for black and brown children. I think a lot of, in and a lot of cases, and they get more structure and more academic and, and less research or less recess. Yeah. And Olga Jarrett has done incredible research in the state of Georgia on, on recess and uh -huh. children's access to playful learning. Yeah. She's someone to definitely look up. Olga Jarrett, she actually yeah. contributed the chapter on Piaget. Yeah, um, I've read a lot of her stuff. I love it. Um, and But even recess, even when children do get recess, even the recess is often very structured and children have a lot of limits on them during that time. It's So play as equity yeah. takes these two strands and makes them integral rather than just a play course or just a section of a course or just right. a Tuesday, Thursday thing. No, it's infused <laughs> as a, a key component. And it's, and it's, again, it's not just child play, it's adult play. Yeah. And, and a playful spirit is a piece of, of that um, idea of, of perpetuating this. Yeah. So what I see in the table of contents of this book is those major white European Western theorists mm -hmm. embedded because they are the shoulders we're standing on. Mm -hmm. And there's some pretty good ideas some pretty good observation yeah. tools that they've offered to us. But then there are a, a, an emerging diversity um, of other authors. So yes, this book is 
finished. It's a closed canon. There's only 16 <laughs> different verses. But I think what Vivian has done in gathering this community is say, oh, there are other ways to think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and let's go look around the corner and listen to new voices, mm -hmm. new cultures, new ways of being. Um, so there's a variety of experiences. Uh, experiences with mm -hmm. diverse cultures that we can get involved in that help us validate our playful experiences of childhood, our playful experiences as adult, whatever culture that we're in now and, and being, but then to say, oh, but there's other ways to play and, mm -hmm. and let's learn. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I guess, what is your, what is your hope for this book? What when you put it out into the world, what did you dream about with this book? Oh, thank you for that question. My <laughs> fantasy is, and I asked them to make it not more than $20. They made it, I think it's $22 for yeah. the paperback. Yeah. My fantasy is that any administrator, like director of a preschool or principal of an early childhood, of, of a school that has early childhood programs, when challenged, why are you allowing the kids to play so much? They could say, well, the research backs it up. Yeah. Scholarly, it's right there in the title, it's scholarly. <laughs> and I want to add that this image is the playscape that my husband built. Oh. That is was in our backyard. Yeah. On. I love that. Camp Janice, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and I also wanted to emphasize that Tim Kynard, who is a yeah. Rock, totally yeah, he's, he's just great do you know his name do you know anyway he i don't he, know him yeah. and uh really good work on violent play risky play yeah oh risk, okay yeah. on the edge yeah yeah when it looks like they're being violent but they're just being kids uh -huh. and they should be allowed to play like that anyway he when he's kind of oversees my my work and he said he wanted a strong emphasis on equity so we had mm -hmm you know, a whole section on totally focused in the class I taught at Texas State is what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. So a whole section focused on um, racism in play and and then also language in play. Yeah. How children get, um, their languages get hijacked in play sometimes. Yeah. Well, now you've got to come back to another episode and talk about some of that stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, what I were you going to say, Josh? The, the effort should be to validate others that the other is lifted up through the this book uh -huh. and that uh yes this book is a a tome it is a, a an artifact to reference and refer to but i think more a springboard that would lead us yeah, that's to, think I about, to think about new ways to uh to uh, push ourselves into uh ways of thinking and being yeah Okay. So maybe the answer won't be different. And um, you talked about administrators and directors having this, but a lot of people listening are, you know, in the classroom doing the work or doing childcare in their home. Um, what's your case for them to read this book? Would it be well, different? Would your answer be different? Personally, I think it's fun to read, but of course, yeah, <laughs> that's always my answer so too. I, yeah, I we are here among the nerds. Yes, yeah. that's who we talk I, to. I love here. biography. I've always loved biography. So for me, it's fun to read different individuals and how they perceived play mm -hmm. and how they would advocate for play. Yeah. So 
uh, and each chapter is only they're, they're pretty short so you can read it and put a bookmark in it and come back to it months yeah. later and you really haven't missed anything because it's like it's a daily not. devotional <laughs> thank you i like that <laughs> what would you like to add to that josh oh that it's provocation i agree that that reading it in those little snippets is a way to provoke the family day home provider mm -hmm. the the uh, grandparent uh, mm -hmm. looking for insights, the, yeah. the father who is responsible for care of a toddler um, needs to think about new ways to think yeah. about. And these nerdy scholars have, <laughs> have done some of this and, and not one of them has answered it. They're not one of these is the answer to play. Or <laughs> we would not be talking to you. We would be selling it on the big book, you know, right. <laughs> Again, the capitalist yeah. version of this. Yeah. No, it's formative. It, it is provocative. It is uh, a provocation mm -hmm. for uh, finding your own sense. And it's not that the family day home provider needs to become a theorist, but yet you are. You, yeah. you have a frame of reference with which you think about the image of the child. And you need to constantly um, navel gaze, you know, self-aware, self-evaluate. What is it about my view of the child that comes out in the way I talk, the way that I expect, the way that mm -hmm. I prepare the environment? And what is it that can change and make it more child-centered, more trusting, more relational, more interactional where I'm following the child rather than dictating. Yes, mm -hmm. there are those elements of care that the child can't do, but there's a whole whole world of life that the child can do for themselves yeah. and that we can support and and uh, and defend their playful approach. Yeah. I I think that um one one of the things that I could see being uh, coming from from interacting with this book and thinking about it, it's very accessible for one thing, and I think that's what you both were talking about. Like it's theory, but it's not dry, boring statistic kind of stuff. It's it's um it's told in in a very accessible way in each chapter. Um, oh my gosh, I've lost it again. Uh, but I, I think it can also be sort of validating, I guess, is what I was trying to say. I think a lot of us have that instinct for play and we feel like the system we're in won't let us do that. Um, or we're very invested in our identity as being a teacher of young children and teaching means I have to be very active. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so when we start talking about allowing more play or providing space for play, or I talked to Rusty Keeler yesterday and he talked about space for being, for children to be, okay. then that threatens our, our identity as a teacher, because what is my role then? And kind of what you just were talking about, Josh, if you, if you have this, you have some of these pieces of theory, then your role becomes, how do I intentionally apply this theory? Um, and uh, the advocacy piece becomes more important. Okay. So now I, I use this information to explain to the outsiders looking in why children are having space and time to play in my program. And that's my role 
um, rather than controlling the children and that kind of thing. Were you going to say something? Just a tool for articulation. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to say that I think Josh said this in his own life. (laughs) I think I had an incredible memory of what I felt like as a three-year-old or a Mm four-year-old. I mean, because over and over again with kids, I would think, well, what would I want to do if I was five or six or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be controlled. And then I also want to point out that corporations have discovered that the more freedom that they give to their employees, the better the results are. Mm -hmm. So if they give a group of people a project and say, do it whenever you want, wherever you want, it's due by such and such date, and then just turn them loose, they get much better results than Mm. when they micromanage them. Yeah. Yeah. So we just need to translate that down a little bit. mm -hmm. (laughs) And I just remember when I was teaching preschool, in other words, Camp Chaneser, and really for the most (laughs) part, everybody was just like, wow, this is great. (laughs) Do whatever you want. But occasionally I would have a parent want me to justify something and they you know every once in a while someone wants those worksheets yeah you know? yep something tangible the receipt what did, what did you learn today and I think a book like this would have been helpful for me yeah. then to, yeah. and I I don't remember exactly what I said I didn't I wasn't very defensive about it because frankly the kids were having a great time yeah. what more could you ask yeah I used to get very defensive about that and I'd have like an internal cringe if a family challenged what I was doing, but um, I think families are key. If we're going to advocate for play, Um, we need families who understand that and don't feel the academic pressure to be going. And instead of calling the childcare program and saying, um, how do you get them ready for school? They're saying, tell me about play at your, in your site. Yeah. So maybe have a copy of a book like this yeah. for them to check out and read. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing is I took my kids all over. Um, we went to Crow's Nest Farm and Pioneer Farm. And the feedback I always got from the administrators of those places is that my kids were the most attentive. Like when we they would mm. go to these learning programs, this the Natural Science Center, they'd always say, oh, we always look forward to your group because they weren't so micromanaged, Mm -hmm. you know, when they were in this environment where they were learning something new, they were very ready to learn it. Yeah. And I think that's part of the big picture is if you don't expect them to sit still for long periods of time, then when, when they're in an environment where they're learning something brand new, they have a greater attention span. Yeah. That's the other thing I wanted to say real quick, because I know we're running out of time. (laughs) Uh, attention is key to every attention is key to learning anything anytime you build a child's attentional skills those skills are going to extrapolate into other areas of their life Mm -hmm. so if a child's allowed to play with legos for two hours uninterrupted they are focusing for two hours on one task and that ability to stay focused can apply to other things and when we divide their day into 15 or 20 minute then then we work it's the opposite yeah we're we're destroying their ability to stay out pay attention to Santa. similar with music and i think josh would be a better person to talk about this with music but the ability to learn a piece of music requires having to be focused Mm -hmm. and those attentional skills apply to other areas of your life absolutely The, the piece i'm wrestling with personally professionally 
sociologically positioned in this moment is privilege, right. is recognizing how much my propensity to play, my advocacy for play comes out of, I've never really gone hungry. I've never mm-hmm. really lacked for mm-hmm. um, sustenance or mm-hmm. safety or, you know, and and I've never really been threatened in environments you know I'm the guy I can raise my voice I can be present and and uh that is a privilege and and I'm learning about leveraging privilege not as a gotcha not as a a weapon but as a a tool for inclusion for inviting others to have the confidence that um the work will get done does mm-hmm. the care for those things that are essential um there is no lack in this universe there's just a misappropriation of yes. funds and it's mm-hmm. and there's plenty and it is uh, responsible for us to promote that that share within uh all to say yes we can do this we can do it together mm-hmm. and we have to really um utilize privilege that makes it really easy for me to say oh playful spirit oh just come and play well but there's chickens to feed or there's um <laughs> uh, you know children's bottoms to wipe there's yeah. things to do and uh so i really do acknowledge how much my perspective is because i've been spoiled because i've come from such privilege and my classroom experience was always in a team partner event so uh, sister marianne was my co-teacher for 14 years and uh, helen johnson for five years in the elementary before that and my own parenting is because of a phenomenal partner in this mm-hmm. home that cares for me and allows me the privilege and and of grandparenting together so those sense of uh privilege i i acknowledge my dependence on others who provide that that essential services so that i can play and mm-hmm. and i don't know the answer to provide to those that are in real limited resources for this moment uh there's plenty out there let us know how to help get it to all of the different uh, corners of children's lives so that they can be then free to be themselves yeah thank you for saying that i um i just finished a book called child care justice um collection another collection of essays and michael gramling wrote a chapter about child care as a human right where he addresses a lot of a lot of that. And um, so uh, uh, thank you, Josh, for sharing all of that, because it is always important um, to come back and think about our own, our own privilege and our own, um, the ways our path has maybe been easier or has faced less barriers than, than other people are experiencing. Um, well, yeah, we probably need to wrap this up. I think we're getting close to an hour. Um, so thank you so much uh, for both of you for being on today. And um, and thank you for the book and the work you put into it. Um, as I as I was reading it, I was thinking, uh, you know, making a list of the individual authors, too, that I want to invite on to see if we can have some of those conversations. So hopefully re- listeners will be hearing about this book for a while. 
I may offer in my concluding thought of the Montessori chapter, just how much Montessori viewed the work of the child as really, I mean, the work, meaning the outcome, Mm -hmm. the the result of the normalized was her reference for the child that was in the flow of the classroom and, and working. So in this chapter, I wrote, as a humanist, Montessori believed in the power of the individual the home of the soul, a life force that rises up within the human to direct and construct the best version of the self. So the child is is aimed, aiming at a product, meaning mm-hmm. a self. So. Mm-hmm. Lovely. And I would like to say one little, one more thing about you know, the hand and the brain co-evolved. Yeah. That that was part of Froebel and that he had that whole list of what he called gifts Mm -hmm. of things for kids to touch in a particular sequence and I think Montessori built on that too Mm -hmm. that carefully prepared environment with specific materials contributed to the development of children's brains development and of course we just have to fangirl around Heather Burnt saying awesome this is so much fun (laughs) to be a part of the nerd pool that you gathering together yes, so we call it the nerd collective that's us thank you for well, we we feel honored to be here and thank you so much for allowing us to participate all right thank you both and thanks everybody for listening to another episode hope you'll come back again next week um this was that early childhood nerd thank you bye-bye bye and that's the show now go get your nerd on has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.